Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is February 19th of 2023. On Tuesdays, we call in from wherever we may be uh, today at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time to participate. And for our friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, it's 5.30 a.m. Central. Thank you, Charles. Our team's working to be faithful to year A, and that puts us in the Gospel of Matthew. And in the past weeks, and wrapping up today, uh, we've been using the letters identified in the lectionary to create understanding in the Gospel text. And we close that journey today uh, with one reading from First Peter. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how we do it. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Willard in Minnesota. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Good to see all of you, my friends. And uh, two readings today. Uh, and the first is Matthew 17, 1 through 9, the Gospel reading. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That's the Gospel reading. And uh, now we're going to turn to Second Peter 1. 16 through 21, and my friend Charles Willard is going to pick that up. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by that majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come down from heaven while we were there with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of doing one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will. The men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Thank you, Charles. And uh, I tell you, I just, I just love the morning star rising in someone's heart. It just jumped out at me as you were reading that. So those are the, that's the pair. And uh, good news here, it wasn't hard putting them together because there is a reference to some of the gospel that we read. 
So we have three questions to work with today. And Sarah, heads up, first one's coming to you. Uh, we've spent a lot of our time in our podcast discussing the presence of Jesus and his mission on earth, healing, nourishment, acting as a servant. Uh, those are tangible things. Uh, here, the lectionary committee asked us to look at the good news through the lens of majesty. Looking at Matthew and the letters passage, what is, and I'll put in quotes, what is his majesty? Sarah? Oh, these are, this is a, a really big question for me. It, it's almost as if our our little puny human brains recognize or comprehend, might be the better word, Jesus revealed in his mysterious glory, fully illuminated, brilliant, numinous, pronounced by God, beloved. It's like when we stand in the full realization of that fact, when it intersects with our comprehension of that fact, that seems to me to be the majesty of, of Christ. Um, and it's something we, it's more than just a recognition. It's, it's a comprehension as well as a resonance of something that's truthful, or something that's profoundly um, independent of time. Thank, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Bill Hull, Majesty, His Majesty. I think, as is often true in Scripture, a statement is made without a follow-up, detailed, rational explanation. We're simply told this phrase, His Majesty. So I think we get some clues. It's from God in verse 17. Christ received honor and glory from God the Father. And in verse 19, he says this majesty confirms the prophetic message. That's talking about the impact, not, again, defining it. And I think, in one sense, it's strange that we have leaped ahead to Matthew 17. Um that's paired with the first Peter passage. But, uh, and I will say more about this in a subsequent question response, I think it's significant that in this journey, we now stand with Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament law and prophecy. They represent more than that, but at least Moses is the bringer of the tablets and the law and Elijah, a prophet in every sense of the word. And I think we stand with Jesus, the disciples, Moses and Elijah, in the light of Jesus' transfiguration, which is, for those who were there, a physical manifestation of his majesty. And since there's not a detailed definition, I can briefly report what it stirs in me. It reminds me that Jesus is the light of the world, and he guides us to be transfigured, transformed, 
seeing service, sacrifice, and even suffering as surrounded by and reflecting the majesty of God seen in Jesus Christ and shared with us also as as disciples. We've talked much about how Jesus reverses human expectations. And this Jesus who stands in majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration is going to suffer, die, be crucified uh, before the resurrection. So majesty then takes on a whole different uh, perspective. And I believe that for those there, Peter is caught up in all and wants to memorialize it, that God's majesty is experiential, it's shared, it's empowering, and it is communal. Jesus wasn't alone on that mountain. And I think the first Peter and Matthew passages invite us to go beyond an enslavement to rationality to go up on the mountain into a new world. In that regard, I want to read a few sentences from Father Richard Rohr this morning. He, there's an email that comes every morning. I read. I will read this part of it. Prophets do not try to be logical. Perhaps this is why prophets get closer to the divine reality than many of the more rational and prudent, logical, and theological approaches to God. If we are looking for prudence and balance, we do not need to read the prophets. That is not their vocation. They are not called to be that. In a world that is so one-sided, always looking for the self-preserving, careful, cautious, and protective way, the prophet feels that he must stand way over at a distance and pull humanity to the other side. They must help humanity experience the pathos of God, the pain, the feeling, the longing, the desire of God. Thanks for the question, Don. Thank you for that reading, Bill. Charles, His Majesty, what are your thoughts? I don't have thoughts to share right now. I mean, I've, I'm, it's been a long journey for me in this in this podcast, and I just I you know I these are just not my feelings. Uh, these are not my experiences, and I'm grateful for y'all's um, willingness to put up with a not a naysayer, but a you know a, 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 a puzzle a puzzle involver. I think that's why you're here. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I just made a few notes. The first one is if you're moderating or facilitating a class around this, one thing that might be interesting to start, and I, I, I would raise this, I raised in my own heart, do I use the word or similar terms to majesty? Is it in my lexicon? I, I, and I might ask you folks, uh, you know, do you use the word majesty or, or what some of the other language that goes with it in translation would be grandeur, splendor, sovereign authority? Uh, I don't use any of it. I mean, I just kind of look around. Sarah, do you use that language? Do you use that? Well, I, I recently was informed by my daughter that the word lit might describe something really awesome. 
And I thought that was interesting because we have this illumination image of Christ and um, interesting intersection with modern language to call it lit. I'm not sure if that's still um, a cool vernacular. Um, since I'm not in the cool group, I'm a lame mom. So there it is. Thank you. Bill, do you use, is that in your lexicon? Uh, no, it's not. And I was thinking of that as you were speaking. Oh, what I would say, back to the experiential, uh, I experience it when I stand at dawn out here on Tampa Bay at sunrise or in my backpacking days at dawn on an overlook. All I can see is the forest. Uh, there is an experience. Of, but no, I, I really don't use that language, Don. Yeah, how about you, Charles? Do you use that language? Is that in your lexicon? No. Your everyday? Well, not, not <laughs> it's not in my everyday lexicon. I mean, it's in my, you know, dictionary so that I know what the word, I, I can find out what it means and what it says, but I'm not talking about experience. Okay. Well, and, and not not with mine either. I don't use it. I mean, the only time it would pop in my head probably is with irony. Yes, Your Majesty. Maybe with my children when I had young children. Oh, well, princess for a day or, you know, yeah, whatever you say. But not it's not there. I don't use the word grandeur either. I don't use the word splendor, and I don't use the word sovereign authority. But I think that's the way to get a discussion going about what it means. And, and I think the breakthroughs like what you did, Sarah, that was like, wow, that was made sense, uh, the, the lit idea. I will qualify, though, that I seek that experience daily. Um, I will tell you, Venus has been spectacular. Just as the sun has set in the last week and a half, she's been hanging just above um, the horizon with Jupiter trailing um, so so closely behind, and, and she has been spectacular or glorious in the heavens. So I think that that's one of those moments where we can all step back and go, yeah, we agree, that that's an expression of that. Um, so I, I don't actually use the words majesty, sovereign, but I'm going to try to do it today. I'm going to surprise somebody. That's, that's spectacularly sovereign, majesty, something. Well, I, as I was working through that, you know, why, why I don't use it or what is you put right here in front of us in this passage, and I just had four little parts. The first is I'm reading into this a message that, it can be witnessed, can be, that, that there's, you know, we we don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, but uh, you, don't look on the, you don't look on the face of God, you don't look at eternity, and you do not have access. We cannot bear the majesty. We're not allowed to see it. But here it says it is, it is not only accessible, it is witnessed. This is not hearsay. You know, the, Peter's going, I was there. I'm here to tell you. I heard a voice. It's all shining. It's all there. Uh, it can be witnessed. The second is it can be witnessed without speculation. And the second question will go into that as well. It can be witnessed without speculation. It is what it is. Or uh, the I am is there. It's my, you don't have to create myths around it. Uh, so it can be witnessed without speculation from the eternal. Third. And finally, coming toward us. So about my was it can be witnessed without speculation from the eternal coming toward us 
and uh, and here it's all tied together, I think, with the gospel and the reading from First Peter. Peter is uh, a voice from heaven. We were witness. The coming of Jesus, following Jesus, it was there. And then those things in combination on the mountain. Well, let's get to the next question. Bill Hall, this one's coming at you. And uh, I was wondering, we've been the last, all through Epiphany, working mostly with Matthew and uh, 1 Corinthians. And considering the insights uh, that you all shared on the first question, I wonder how did these passages depart passages depart from the messages of Matthew and 1 Corinthians of recent weeks or the readings of Matthew Matthew thus far? How how are they departing from the reading and how are they additive? Bill Hull? Uh, Very challenging question, Don. (laughs) I went back over the preceding weeks and just briefly I will highlight uh, from the, what we read from First Corinthians and the Gospel of John and mostly Matthew, uh, this journey in First uh, Corinthians, we Paul was reminding that we have all the spiritual gifts we need. Uh, he appeals to us to be of one mind. He challenges the foolishness of the wisdom of the world in contrast with the wisdom of God, and he calls for followers of Christ to avoid the party spirit. You know, my spiritual leader is better than yours, Apollos, Paul, or Jesus. Um, And then he talks about being infants who need milk, not yet ready for the solid food, and urges us to avoid jealousy and quarreling. And in the gospel journey, we... um, were introduced again to the John the Baptist and the emphasis on seeing and looking. Jesus, after John's arrest, uh, withdrew. And then the Beatitudes, the last three weeks, and we'll get to the passage for today in, in a moment. Um, I think that the, the difference is uh, that... Um, as you put it, Don, earlier, we're dealing with tangible things, human uh, conflict, human relationships, and literally uh, in the passage for today, we're on a, another um, another plane. But I think, as I've already suggested with question one, I think that the sequence the lectionary people offered us is so powerful. Now we're at a mountaintop. We're looking with a a different perspective. And to illustrate that, again, I want to read uh, a portion of a famous speech by Martin Luther King Jr. Interestingly, he, what I'm about to read, he had not prepared. He wasn't planning to speak, and he was at in Memphis. And the next day, he was murdered. Um, but he was pressed to speak at the church where he was, and he said this: "I do not know what will happen now, 
we have got some difficult days ahead, but it really does not matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop, and I do, do not mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I am not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And God has allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I have looked over, and I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I am happy tonight. I am not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is a transfiguration. That is courage. That is sacrifice. Um, And um, what is additive to me is that in the commonplace struggle of human experience, that even among believers who get into conflict, Jesus still offers us the mountaintop. And from that perspective, we see the whole universe, the whole world, all creation, all human beings as loved by God. And so I think, Don, we need to keep going to the mountaintop, (laughs) and we are transformed, and we see the world and ourselves differently. And I think we find the courage to take the first step down the mountain You remember what was at the foot of the mountain of transfiguration. It's not in what we read. There was a young boy who needed healing. The disciples were in conflict because they had not been able to heal. And Jesus came and brought a new wholeness. Those are my thoughts for the moment, Don. Thank you, Sarah. We're talking about the last few weeks we've been working on the letters and uh, and Matthew, and what 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 in this adds to the discussion, or or is a departure from what we've been dealing with the last few weeks? It seems like we've stepped back from Paul's loving correction of the church of Corinth, and we're refocusing on the definition of who it is that we follow and why. Um, the Transfiguration story presents us with a profound moment for believers, I think. Um, Peter's eyewitness testimony lifts the person of Jesus beyond that of a prophet or a lawgiver or a a law adjudicator. Um, Jesus is beloved, faithful to his identity. He's acknowledged by the Father. And just as Jesus reveals the tenor and character of God for our sake, the Father pronounces his affirmation and affection for Jesus. And I think that tells us more about the relationship we should have with each other. And it's interesting that it amplifies Paul's letter to the Corinthians in that way for me. It's almost like this is how you love each other. Thank you. Uh, Charles, coming to you in a second. I was leaning towards departure on this one, and it went to the lexicon, that it's a reminder that if I don't use that language, I probably don't have my eyes open, right? I'm not aware that majesty is present 
and kind of going back to the first Corinthians that he sets the stage for the advice and counsel he gives. You're very generous with, I think, Paul about his gentle, about how he approaches it, but he sets it out by, he doesn't reference, I don't think, majesty, but he says, look, it's already here. It arrived already. What are you doing? And, and I think the departure I'm intuiting that these were linked together, these passages, to as a reminder to me that if you pick departure, it's a it's a rich departure. If I don't use the language, I'm not even engaged in um, the soaring parts of the letters in the cross gospel. I don't see them. I actually understand the healing. I I. I I, I feel like I understand something of service. I understand something of the mission of Christ, but without the magisterial piece, not there. And so I think it's intentionally separating them. I think it's a departure to say, all right, let's set all that aside and focus on the majesty of the Christ and the creator. And uh, and then we have real tr- truth-telling. You know, we're a witness to these things. We're not making it out. And it's already arrived. And I just keep coming back to me not using that term, majesty. Um, one of my favorite pop songs has the word, there is no language in our lungs to tell the world how we feel. Don't you have the words? Well, I think, I think this is saying, all right, let's just focus on the true majesty that's already, they're already present with us. Uh, that, might, that might help. That might help a scolding Paul. That might help us read the gospel going forward. By the way, XTC wrote that song. There's no language in our lungs to tell the world how we feel. And I think, you know, here's a gift of the word uh, where we have uh, Peter going, well, I'll give you the language. It is majesty. Try it sometime. It might open your eyes if you use the words properly. So let's go to... Um, uh, Charles, the, any any thoughts on whether this is additive or a departure from the the readings we've been doing the past few weeks? No, I'm still in the midst of misery. I'm, <laughs> misery, misery. Well, a little of both. Okay. Um, Sarah, uh, last question. What application is the concept of? And it, I'm using the new Revised Standard versions. Cleverly devised myths have for today's readings and our encounter with Scripture going forward. Um, the NIV calls it cleverly devised stories, but let's go with cleverly devised myths. Uh, like your uh, uh, thoughts on that, Sarah? Well, when you spoke it just now, my brain heard Carol King, not Carol King, Carol Kane, um, and and Billy Crystal having a conversation about um, they have a, a a pronunciation issue with the word miss, and they say the word myth, and miss miss yes, and so it's that combination of those two working together um, in a comedic way. For me, that. Cleverly devised myths seem to be uh, um, centered down on human constructs and that we've used those particular stories to reinforce a human um, 
desire or human um, framework of understanding a particular thing. So when I was very young, I um, probably had a stomach bug, but my mom fed me my favorite lunch, and from that day forward, when I um, didn't, it didn't stay in my stomach, so I was unhappy most of the afternoon. But from that day forward, I had constructed a myth that that particular lunch made me sick. So even to this day, I don't eat that lunch anymore. That's a human coverly devised myth um, in my book. So I, I'm thinking about the way that culture looks at Christianity. And they want to call it a cleverly devised myth, a common understanding of the creation story and a, 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 that we've rationalized the creation of a deity in an effort to um, help us reconcile and understand the world in which we live. And I think that that's been a projection for a lot of um, cultures to look at a faith practice in, um, in that explanation goes with it. So I think this is a challenge, an almost daily question that every believer poses to themselves um, about what is believed and why. And are we following a clever myth contrived by humanity, or do we have a relationship with a creator that's built on eyewitness accounts, glory, majesty, awe, splendor, um, and meaningful interactions with other Christ followers. And so that's, I think, um, something that we think about, we consider, that we visit, that we um, walk through as we continue to follow Christ. And I think that's a, an important conversation to have with yourself. And it may be a conversation that we're asked to have with someone else who's a believer. And it's a question of why do you believe? What do you believe? And, 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 and how is that relevant in the world in which we operate and the world in which we follow Christ? I think that that's the, the, the delivery or the, um, the, the juxtaposition of a cleverly devised myth in confrontation with the truth of Christ. Thank you. Charles, any thoughts on the... The application of the use of the term cleverly devised myths? No. Bill, I was uh, thinking about uh, this and how it connects with our readings of the past few weeks. And especially going into First uh, Corinthians, you know, there's when, when Paul's appealing to everybody, he's, he's talking about uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He talks about, he's the word foolishness. And I think during some of our podcasts in recent weeks, it's been, to your point, Sarah, you know, a matter of the heart, an examination of confronting the idea of folly. And I will add mythology, myth-making. Uh, you know, what, what's really, we, you know, uh, uh, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And I think we've been having this discussion. I I, I think uh, there's nothing in this, and I think I've heard it before, there's nothing in here that's prohibiting myth-making. 
in terms of human context, your point, Sarah, uh, the po- the point, if if I read it properly, is not this uh, that that uh, all understanding comes from the Christ, and that it is locked in and uh, it is knowable and witnessable. But it's it's not it's this is not a mandate about creating understanding, human understanding, and the, uh, the stories of Christ. Uh, you know through myth-making and storytelling. We are all storytellers. We're built to tell stories. We're built for context. Uh, so I I thought that was uh, helpful. And in the past few weeks, we've dealt with the concept of foolishness. And I'll just additively say, Sarah, that uh, to what you said, that uh, every passage we've read through Epiphany in this journey in my heart has been the encouragement to confront not storytelling but to confront doubt to confront what may be foolish in my heart or what other people are telling me are foolish. It seems to be where Paul is starting in Corinthians. I know you're confronting those things every day but you've already arrived. I know you may have doubts. I know and in this passage, if we wrap up this journey through Epiphany and Transfiguration Sunday, says, and by the way, add majesty to it. Bill, what about what do you think about the cleverly devised myths thing? I, I want to build on what I a part of what I hear you and Sarah emphasizing. Sarah, your phrase was, uh, "These are human constructs," uh, and and that's true and a helpful reminder and. Uh, Don, you're saying that we do build myths. My memory from college and seminary was that myths may contain an element of truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Myth doesn't mean there's no reality to it. An an analogy in the theological world, a heresy is not the belief of a, a, a person who has no faith at all. Heresy means overemphasizing a truth of the gospel for us as Christians. For example, Christ was God, and docetism said he was only God. It denied Christ's humanity. Other heresies of what was declared heresy said he was a good prophet, a good person, but he was not divine. So there's an element of truth that gets exaggerated, and I think that's the the value and the potential risk of myth-making, Sarah, your human constructs. I think it's empowering, and I I would say, I'm saying this because we have people listening who are perhaps preparing to preach or to teach this passage. I think it's empowering because if we knew the exact nature of it, we could say, well, I don't adhere to that myth. I take, Don, and what your question did for me, what myths do I construct? Mm-hmm. What truth am I over-exaggerating? I think that's empowering, that we have to find out for ourselves what are Bill's cleverly devised myths. And I like that phrase, cleverly, in that, it, in other words, it makes sense to me. I'm creating this myth to protect myself, to exalt myself, or whatever, and it 
it really sounds clever. It's really, it's really good. I like it. Now we can surmise from other passages what some of the cleverly devised myths were. I've already referred to the personality cults. My spiritual leaders better than yours. Gnosticism, which said there's a secret knowledge and some people are higher up the spiritual ladder uh, than others. Uh, perhaps he had that in mind. But again, I think it's important that we examine ourselves, our culture, our relationships to explore what myths we devise. Some, for me, great examples, the health and wealth gospel if you really are a person of faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. Christian white supremacy, using religion for political dominance, the belief that if someone advances our agenda, their unethical and immoral choices and behaviors are excused, lying is excused. Those are obvious examples. The problem with that is that I can say, well, I, I don't do that. I don't devise that myth. And um, I will be honest with you, Don. I'm not sure what my myths are, but I believe they are there. And I am going to end in a moment because if I could be aware of one, I'd be willing to share it. But I know I need to keep working on what are Bill's cleverly devised myths. That's a Thank great you for the question. You thank you very much. Uh, well, I, I, I'm probably going to be thinking about that all day, and also you have to be thinking about, you know, my internal audience. You know how I interpret the world, and uh, how I, you know, there's a lot of how you dress up in the New Testament. And what clothes are you wearing? And you know how am I dressing myself up? And since Jesus is a man, uh, you know, get myself and to dress him up any way I want to. You know, it kind of goes into my internal audience. Who is who is my Christ? And I think that's where the the, the concept of the prophets come into the readings today, which is that's it's, that's different. That the prophets have a direct take, a first hand a first hand reading on the situation. There's it's not in play. It's not you know the world is not in jeopardy. Christ rides rides through the gate in Jerusalem. He's riding to the cross. And at least in, as I understand it, nothing's going to stop him. Not my interpretation, not with people, but my selfishness, not any bickering, not any of my own mythology, which I need to figure out too, Bill. Nothing's going to stop him. Uh, well, we're about out of time here. Before we say goodbye, just look around and see if there's any other follow-ups from anybody. You good? Outstanding. It's been a great walk through Epiphany and, uh, and into Transfiguration Sunday, a reminder, we're going to begin uh, Lent uh, next time we're together. We'll be in the Lent season. And uh, for more information, you can go to 3501 West San Jose with a physical location of Palmasia Presbyterian Church. That's in Tampa, Florida. But also on a virtual platform, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We commend that site to you. Not just because they're the ones that make this podcast possible, uh, but because they're great sermons, readings, classes, chance to take communion, outstanding music, prayer. So check that out, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.